Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. So I was praying for us a couple weeks ago, and I felt like God just kind of gave me this word, just kind of dropped in my heart that is this, that revival, say revival, looks like family. Say family. You see, the word revival is actually to bring back to life so that things would be in the state that they were already created to be, like that they would step into their original purpose, that as the series that we've been teaching on goes, that they would actually be normal. And so the truth is, is that what God is doing and wants to do in the world is that he would teach us and that we would walk in love so that we would see each other as spiritual family. That means this, that we have to have healthy relationships. Who here likes conflict? Anybody? Three of you. Who here hates conflict? So years ago, I was, when I was on staff at Cypress Creek Church in Wimberley, I was talking to Grayson, who was my boss at the time, and I said, hey man, I hate conflict. Like, I hate confrontation. I don't want to do it. Would you like walk with me and mentor me in it? And he, we were sitting down and he said, Joel, he said, I don't know that you're ever going to like conflict, but you do it and that's right. And I thought, man, this did not go the way that I thought it would. I was looking for like a secret like weapon that would make it like all of a sudden just easy and fun. And the truth is, I think God can give us a perspective that will make conflict less miserable. And I'm not saying that I have the secret ingredient to make it a joy to you all the time. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about conflict and confrontation. And my goal is this, is that you would leave with some really good keys. But more than that, that you would leave with hope and that you would leave with a recognition of how forgiven you already are. And I think if we can grab a hold of those things then it will help us quite a bit. I've uh, enjoyed through the years doing premarital counseling and even some marriage counseling, and, and those folks tend to understand that conflict is a part of relationship. One of the things that cracks me up, though, is people that, that say, we have a good marriage, we never have conflict. I'm like, you probably don't have a very good marriage if you don't have conflict. The truth is, is that all healthy relationships require conflict. That means that does not necessarily mean that you have a good marriage. <laughs> the truth is, is that with a lack of conflict and confrontation, it's not necessarily the sign of a healthy relationship. It's probably the sign of a superficial one. And the truth is, is that if you lack conflict and confrontation, that you're probably not growing. Have you ever had something, let's just say like a booger, on your face? right? And and you've been around a bunch of people and nobody did you the courtesy of saying, hey, there's a booger on your face. (laughs) Anybody ever experienced that? And you're like, man, I really wish that somebody would have loved me enough to take that awkward baby step to say, Joel, there's a boogie. And the truth is, 
is that it is impossible to grow yourself by yourself. And when we are a part of a family, a spiritual family, a biological family, a family maybe that's blended. When you're part of a family, the truth is, is that there is a, a proximity that, that you live in that requires confrontation in order to have healthy relationship. The truth is this, though, that in healthy, trusting relationships, confrontation is not a blow-up. It doesn't involve yelling or name-calling but it should last maybe 15 minutes at the most. It's not an accusation on character. It's just saying, hey, when this happened, I experienced it this way. Or when you do this, I noticed that it's actually doing harm to you, that it's actually not the way that you were created to live. Now, sometimes it takes longer than 15 minutes because it's a deep thing, it's a pattern, all that kind of stuff. But, but so often what happens is, is that we avoid confrontation until we get to the place of explosion, right? And, and we fool ourselves all in that process of saying, I'm just walking in grace. I'm just walking in grace. I'm just, I'm just being merciful. And then all of a sudden, because you're actually keeping a record of wrongs, there's an explosion that happens and it causes all sorts of damage in relationships. So the truth is, is that every relationship, every family, every church family has rules of engagement in conflict and confrontation. Let me, let me give you a, a picture of what that could look like. One is passive. Now this sounds like it's not confrontation, but it actually is. It's just a way of doing it that's not healthy. In passive confrontation, it avoids the problem or the person altogether under the guise that nothing is wrong. This one appears to be merciful, but refuses to forgive the issue or address the problem. Instead of forgiving wrongs, passiveness remembers them, keeping a mental scorecard, often increasing emotional separation. Anybody ever been around passive? Yep. Aggressive. This is the one that Hardly anybody likes, except for the one person that's aggressive. They really like this one. Engages in every problem and is often a fight looking for a place to happen. Lacking mercy, this way of engaging conflict turns molehills into mountains. This conflict approach is often rooted in a need for control and domination. If... In confrontation, your goal is to be right instead of in right relationship, then you're probably missing it. The next one, I think this is like the American way of doing confrontation. It's called passive aggressive. Anybody ever been around passive aggressive? It avoids direct conflict. Avoiding direct conflict, this style takes glancing blows at the problem or person, hoping to insinuate that there is an issue. It's like, not really saying there's a booger on your face, but hoping that if you stare at it long enough, they'll, you'll, they'll pick up that there's a booger on their face. This is challenging to ever have resolution. It is challenging to ever have revolution, a resolution under the influence of passive aggression. Sarcasm, which means to cut a deep hole, is a major tool of the passive aggressive style. Anybody ever been wounded by passive aggressive stuff? It's like... Like, I feel like there's something wrong, but I'm just too slow to get it. And so it's like, 
should I, am I missing some hints? What, what am I supposed to do? All right, assertive. Say assertive with me. Instead of avoiding the problem or bulldozing through it aggressively or alluding to it passive aggressively, the assertive style is hopeful. Say hopeful. Separating the person from the problem, believing that a positive outcome is possible and even probable. Assertiveness uh, does what scripture teaches and goes straight to the person to address the issue. Steve was telling me a story this week of of a, a guy that was in his youth group. And this guy already, as a teenager, you could tell that this guy was incredibly gifted. Like he, he, he had leadership on his life as a teenager. It was so clear. And Steve went up to the guy and, and he actually confronted him on some issues that he was dealing with. And I think the kid shut down a little bit. But as he looks back on his life, he realizes that this is the thing that marked his life and moved him from a place of walking and gifting to a place of walking in character. Now, this guy is one of the primary teaching pastors at one of the most influential churches in our nation. And it, he traces that move back to Steve, that transition back to Steve, who was willing to have a tough conversation. Here's what that requires, that you care more about the person than them liking you. What we love in that way. What we see in Proverbs 17, 10 is, is this. It says, one word of correction breaks open a teachable heart. Say teachable. But a fool, say fool, can, can be corrected hundreds of times and still not know what hit him. You see, correction is actually, when it's done in love, is actually a gift from God. That somebody would be bold enough to speak into your life, whether it is a direct issue between each other or it's something that they notice in your life, it is a gift that somebody would have the courage to correct you. The way that you receive correction determines the direction that you'll take with your life. When we receive correction as direction instead of rejection, then we can move forward into maturity. But when we're wrestling with immaturity, every bit of correction feels like rejection. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says this, that we would endure hardship as discipline because God is treating us as sons. There is something about being rooted in your identity as a son, daughter of God, that if you're rooted there, then you're willing to take correction as direction instead of as rejection. But if at the first sign of correction, you shut down and get defensive, it's probably a revelation that you are struggling with being secure in your identity in Christ. I want to give you some keys that will actually help you as you even enter into confrontation and conflict with people that will help you move people from orphanhood to sonship and daughtership. What we find, we've been looking at the, at the book of Acts. What we find in the book of Acts, I just want to point out some stories and I'll show you how actually, even in a place where a transformational move of God is happening, that actually conflict and confrontation are actually still keys. One of the first place, places we see conflict in the book of Acts is in Acts 6. And what's going on here is that they're actually taking care of everybody in Jerusalem and there's like this distribution of food and what happens is 
that some of the, the, the Greek widows are actually being overlooked. And so some of the men come up and say, hey, I don't know what's going on. It feels like there's some partiality going on here and there's an issue that needs to be addressed. And so the apostles say, okay, we, we get that. We actually need a system for doing this better. The result is this, is that they found some deacons, some servants that would actually make sure that everybody was getting taken care of. Was that a blow up? No, but it was a confrontation that led to transformation in the way that church was done. It was actually done really well in that moment. We see in Acts chapter eight, Peter is with, uh, in the city and there's this guy named Simon the sorcerer and Simon the sorcerer is basically like a, 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 a magician, not like a trick illusionist magician, but actually under demonic influence magician, sorcerer. And so Peter shows up and Peter is moving in the power of God and there's all sorts of miraculous stuff that's going on. That's actually supposed to be normal, by the way. And, and so that deserves a better amen, I think. There we go. And so uh, Simon goes up to Peter, Simon the sorcerer, and says, hey, I'd like to give you whatever money I can give you in order to buy the anointing that you have. Bad idea. Peter's response was this. Basically, that stuff's not going to work around here, and I hope and pray to God that you don't perish along with your money. And the guy says this. His response, I thought, was brilliant. So Peter was being very direct with a guy that was trying to manipulate and pervert, even demonically, the power of God. And Peter responded to him appropriately and directly. And the guy said, pray that what you said to me won't happen. Here's what we see is that Peter's willingness to be direct, I believe that phrase is a sign of repentance in Simon the sorcerer. He didn't duck it. He wasn't like, hey, we're not doing that. He wasn't trying to play nice, but he was actually willing to speak directly to the issue. We see it again in Acts 11. Um, Peter and Cornelius both have these encounters where God leads them to connect to each other. And, and the result is, is that the move of God among the Gentiles begins. And it creates all sorts of issues uh, in the Jewish church. And so they begin to meet together and they talk about, okay, what are they supposed to do and what can they receive and all that kind of stuff. And so, so everybody's worried about what's going on. And Peter says, hey, what we saw is this, is that God moved without the Gentiles being circumcised and coming under the law. And so that's a sign that God actually wants to move among the Gentiles in faith and not according to the law. And so that confrontation began to set things straight. We see it again, kind of a similar conversation in Acts 15 with Jerusalem, the Jerusalem council, and they, they're trying to decide, okay, how Jewish do believers need to be in order to walk in faith and follow God? And so they say, basically, um, walk in love, um, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, and abstain from sexual immorality. And so they give them direction. Again, it was confrontation that led to, led to a resolution that gave clarity so that the church of God could move forward. Here's the one that, that often gets point out, pointed out the most is Acts chapter 15 and Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas have been on a missionary journey before. And now, uh, and, and in the middle of that journey, a guy named John Mark was with them and he left them. He actually abandoned them. And so now they're getting ready to go on another trip together. And, and Barnabas wants to take John Mark with him. And Paul's like, man, I don't trust that guy. He doesn't seem safe. 
Here's what happens. They have such a sharp divide that they decide to go separate ways. Sometimes it doesn't go well. Say that. Sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes when there is conflict and confrontation, it does not land the way that it's supposed to land. One of the things that we see is that when we're looking over the Bible and we're reading those stories, what we see is this, that the Bible is telling us what did happen, not necessarily what should have happened. These guys had such a sharp divide that they decided not to work together. Here's the incredible thing. The word of God still went forward. That these guys multiplied what they were doing and they, both of them saw fruit in their journeys. But that doesn't mean that that's the way that it should have happened. And I actually think as I was reading this story, this is my thoughts, that there was actually an opportunity, had they done what Jesus told them to do, there was actually an opportunity for, for restoration in that moment that they would not have moved together divided. What Jesus said to do, go with me to Matthew chapter 18. This will be kind of our core text that we'll look at. Jesus lays out a pretty clear way to deal with this. And I think my opinion that Paul and Barnabas, had they been willing to do this, they they may have moved forward in health. I'm going to read it to you and then we'll take a look at it. If your brother or sister sins, say sins. Here's the interesting thing is that it says sins. Some translations, later manuscripts say sins against you. So this is not necessarily just about restoring relationships. It's actually about restoring people. It says, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, they, uh, you have won them over. But if they do not listen, take two or three others. Say two or three others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they refuse, they refuse to listen. Still tell it to the church. Say church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So here's the key. First, we have to understand this, that this scripture is not necessarily about your pain. It's about your brother or sister. So often, we deal with conflict based on our pain tolerance instead of on love. This is actually, what what Jesus is saying is, is not, this is for you. This is how you get made whole or made right. This is actually the way that you love well. You see, it says if your brother or sister is caught in sin, that you would actually go after them and care for them enough to say, hey, the way you're living is actually going to cause you some pain. Uh, Are you doing okay? I really care a lot about you. This is not a tool for control. This is an opportunity for love. And I'm not addressing you simply to, to get you back close to me, but I'm actually loving you and caring for you so much that even if it doesn't really offend me or matter necessarily to my personal well-being, but because we're connected, because you're family, I'm going to pursue you. We've, we've started doing this thing in the church. Again, this is, this is inside of the church. We've started doing this thing in the church where we've said everybody can do what they want as long as it doesn't affect me. Now, I actually think 
that we have made some mistakes in the church by holding the world to the standards that God has called us to live by. Like that we would expect people to walk in purity and in holiness that aren't a part of the family of God. There's actually no power to do that. That's, that doesn't even make sense. I, I want people, I think there's wisdom in scripture even if you don't believe in God, but, but I'm not gonna try to put all of my stuff on somebody else. However, when we bring that thinking into the church and just say, you just do you and I'll do me, that's not love. That's not actually caring for each other. Here's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we're going to go on a tirade now to try to fix everybody and every problem. That's not our role. Our role is to love people well. And so you go directly to the person. Say directly. Say directly again. All right. You got it directly. If the person's not a part of the solution, then they don't need to be included. So it doesn't mean that you get to vent to somebody over here and then go directly over here. That's called indirectly. That's going through there to over there. That's not directly. Here's what we've done. We've made venting some sort of spiritual discipline and is dangerous. Here's why it's dangerous. Because if you hurt me and I go tell Bob, hey, they hurt me. And then I decide, hey, you know what? I probably should listen to Pastor Joel and Jesus and go directly to that person. And now there's like this reconciliation. The problem is, is that Bob, who was never a part of the problem, became part of the problem. And he sees you through my eyes instead of through the eyes of Jesus because I've just dumped my stuff on him. Venting is not a spiritual discipline. And here's what happens. When we go vent, we're looking actually for a teammate. Say teammate. We're looking for somebody else that would join our side to our cause. So now I've got an army to attack you with. And it does so much damage. Causes so much division. And it hurts the heart of God. And what God wants for us is that we would have the courage to go directly to the person. And oftentimes we come up with spiritual reasons for avoiding it. Here's what triangulation is. Triangulation does this. It finds a hero, a victim, and a villain. Say hero, victim, villain. And the hero is the person that gets brought into a, a conflict that's not theirs. And they say, you don't worry about it. I'll deal with this for you. Truth be told, I, I kind of enjoy being the hero. And it's a dangerous place to be because you pick fights that aren't yours. And, and it causes all sorts of damage to people. That's not right. That's my moment of repentance for the morning. Thank you. And what happens is the victim enjoys having a hero on their team to beat up the villain. Some people really love being rescued. They find an identity in it. And the truth is, is that when we find that place, we're not operating in the power that God has given us of self-government, that I would be responsible for myself and my own stuff. And so what happens is, is that I begin to live a disempowered life that's unhealthy 
and it's impossible for me to move forward into the calling of God without taking responsibility for my life, my actions, my conflict, my confrontation. Here's what happens a lot of time. Well-intended people get made out to be the villains because the hero and the victim continually build teams to tear people down. Some of you have been made the villain of a problem that wasn't actually even yours. And I'm sorry. So you go directly to that person. I love what Proverbs 26, 17 says. It's better to grab a mad dog, say mad dog, by its ears than to meddle and interfere in a quarrel that is none of your business. So here's what you do when somebody tries to make you their hero, tries to build a team with you. You ask them a question like this. What did they say when you spoke to them about the issue? Just really simple. Like they're like, hey, so-and-so is doing this, this, and this. Not, oh, I know it. Yeah, they're kind of like I've seen them kind of doing that stuff before. That makes sense, right? You reinforce it and it just gets disgusting. Instead, you just say, what did they say when you talked to them about it? Just really simply, not trying to be passive-aggressive, not trying to be a jerk, but just say, hey, have you already gone to that person? Because I really don't want any place in this business. Does that make sense? Can we do that? Three of you are going to do that. I'm so excited. That's breakthrough, y'all. Revival is on the way. Can we do that? All right. How many of you know that it doesn't always go the way we want it to go? Right? And so when it doesn't go well, what Jesus says here is that you bring somebody with you. Here's what you don't do. You don't bring your best friend who's on your side and against them with you. You find somebody that is impartial, that probably has maturity that surpasses yours, and you go to them and you say, hey, we need some help. I don't need a teammate. I want somebody that can help us get this right because I care about them. What if that doesn't go well? Anybody ever had that not go well? I have. If it doesn't go well, it says take it to the church. Here's what that means for us. We're not going to have Sundays where we start bringing your enemy up here on stage and shaming them. Don't worry. What that means in our context is that we bring it to church leadership and they help sort out what's going on so that we can move forward. It then says this. Treat them, if that doesn't go well, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. What do we do with pagans and tax collectors? We love them. Good job, Redbeard. (laughs) We love them. We don't stone them. We don't beat them up. What we do is we actually love them. We care for them. We're not jerks to them. We don't like reject them, what we do is we, is we actually love them, but we also recognize that they don't need to have influence and authority in this set of relationships. Does that make sense? So it's not like, hey, like, let's throw stones at them because we didn't get it right. All right. Here's what I love, is that in here is an opportunity to see people move forward in health. I love what John 20, 23 says. This verse has, has been a little bit disputed more recently in translation and theological circles, but here's what it says in the Greek translated into uh, English. It says, whoever you forgive is forgiven, say forgiven. And whoever you retain is retained. 
Y'all are getting good at this repeat after me stuff. Here's what translations have said for a long time. And whoever sin you retain is retained. That actually doesn't align with the gospel. What it actually says is whoever you retain, whatever person you retain is actually retained in the family in the kingdom. So you tell people, hey, you're forgiven, which is ultimately the cornerstone of the gospel. That there is forgiveness for you. And when you retain somebody, they're actually retained in the family. Isn't that awesome? So there's a few ways that when we engage in conflict, a few mindsets we can take on. Whether somebody is engaging us or we're engaging them. One is fight. Say fight. Bad idea. Second uh, Timothy 2.24 says this. The servant of God must not be quarrelsome. Oftentimes, we retreat to a fight because we're insecure and, and we don't have our identity in Christ, but it's actually in what other people say. And so now I'm going to like bow up in anger, whether it's me going after you or you coming after me and try to defend myself and my right instead of humbly walk in connection and in relationship. So we fight, we flight, which is that passive thing. It's like, hey, I'm out of here. Get me out of here. Like, I don't want anything to deal with that. I'm not looking for trouble. Keep me away from all that mess. How many of you have ever thought that? It's like, hey, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm running. Makes sense. It's just not biblical. The third, like we've, we tend to say, hey, it's either fight or flight. There's a third way and a fourth way. The third way is acquiesce. Say acquiesce. That's that we give in without holding on to our integrity. Sometimes it's fear and control that people use or guilt and shame that people use. And all of a sudden we just, we're not, we're not willing to take our own like self-government responsibility for ourselves. And so we just give in because we don't want to fight. What happens is, is that you end up getting tossed around in life if you live that way. You're like a ship without a rudder. The fourth way, I believe this is the way that God would have us do it, is that we would honor in truth. Honor in truth. Honor puts relationships first. In truth means that truth matters. When I honor you, I don't give up my right to truth or my desire to have truth, but what I say is this. I'm agreeing that our relationship is worth fighting for. I care enough about you that I'm going to live in integrity, which means I'm going to say what I need to say, but I'm going to put our relationship first over me being right. Sound like a good idea? Let me uh, walk you through what that might look like. Would you like that? The first place that we start is that we reinforce connection. So I've got somebody that I'm going to confront. Here's what most of us want to do. We're so worked up in fear of confrontation that instead of caring for the person, we attack them, right? Like we just lash out, like you did this, this, and this, and, and, and I don't like you, and I don't even like your mom anymore, and like we just like go crazy, right? Like we're all wound up because of fear, and if we've picked 
a, a hero to come with us or to be in our corner, we get even more wound up instead of saying, hey, I want you to know I really value you. I care about you. I care about our relationship. I, I care about us. I, I care about how you're doing. I, I see value in you. I don't believe that you can have healthy conflict without hope. And so I'm going to care about you more than I'm going to care about the situation. The reason why I care about the situation, if it's between us, the reason why I care about the situation is because it's between us. It's actually separating us. Therefore, I want to deal with this, but I'm going to start with putting the emphasis on you and on our relationship. Here's what that does. That brings security. It says, no matter how this argument goes, we're still connected. When Lauren and I were engaged on our way into marriage, I said to her, I said, any issue that tries to come between us is actually against us because we're choosing to be together. You see, when, what, what I've decided is that my connection to Lauren is more important than me being right, more important than me getting my needs met, more important than her doing what I want her to do. I'm choosing to be connected to her regardless of what comes our way. And because of that, nothing can come in between us. But when I try, try to separate myself from her, then I allow things to come between us, which means this, that I have to guard my thoughts. I have to not entertain the thoughts like when she does this, it annoys me, or when she says this, or it drives me. I have to say, no, I'm not going there in my mind. And then when there is something that, that is legitimately trying to come between us, that we actually talk about it. So the first is that I reinforce connection. Here's what's incredible. This is what God does with us. Scripture says that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. Who would have thought if we started treating people that way that we may actually see more transformation in people's lives than if we come at them with a club? God's kindness leads to repentance. Our kindness can lead to other people's repentance, to their transformation. But if you come at somebody, you bring your, your club with you, right? You're like, hey, this is the word of God, and I'm just going to beat you with it. You're, you're going to lose people, Right? Nobody wants to be treated that way. Instead, treat them with kindness and love and, and affirm the, their value and the value of your relationship. Second thing, start with ownership and forgiveness. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 3. He says, why are you concerned with the speck in your neighbor's eye and pay no attention to the log in your eye? Wherever you can, in conflict, take ownership for your part first. Take ownership for your part first. Your part may be 1%. Usually, we think it's 1%, and it's more like 50%. But even if your part is 1%, find that 1% and take ownership for it. Jesus or James, the brother of Jesus, writes this that uh, he writes something <laughs> that God gives grace to the humble. There's something about posturing ourselves in humility that attracts grace, not simply from God, though that's the most important source, but also from other people. And so when I take ownership 
of my own stuff, what happens is, is it's disarming. I told Lauren a while back, I started doing this for a while, and then I explained my actions. What I started doing was this, that I'm, I'm, anytime we're in an argument, oh, we don't ever have arguments, y'all. Just kidding. Anytime I'm ever wrong and she's right, which is most of the time, all the time, but anytime we ever have a, a, an argument, conflict, when I come to my senses, which is not always immediately, I am in a race to find what I can own. And it drives her crazy. <laughs> Who in the world likes to fight and beat up on a humble person? Seriously, right? Like when, you, when somebody is humble, you don't want to kick them. You don't want to like bring out the arsenal like, oh, you're just like your dad or you're just like this or you always do that, right? No, you're like, oh man, if I keep fighting, I am a bigger jerk, right? Seriously though, when we're humble, what happens is that it disarms the other person. Here's what that requires. It requires that I actually love them and care about them. So you start with ownership and forgiveness. The second part is I, f- I forgive not because you're sorry, not because I feel it, but because I'm forgiven. I forgive not because you're sorry. I don't need for you, I don't need to wait for you to say you're sorry for me to forgive you. See, forgiveness is my responsibility. It's not yours. Jesus has already chosen to forgive you, right? Like he, he made that decision at the cross. I am forgiving them. Everything, forgiving them. And so the way that we raise our kids in our house is that when they disobey, we start with forgiveness because grace opens the door for transformation. And so I'm not waiting for you to say that you're sorry for me to forgive you. I may need to wait for you to say you're sorry for there to be brokenness for us to re-enter into relationship at the place that we were. But I'm not waiting for my heart to be right before you and God for you to play ball. I'm just gonna go there anyways. I'm gonna choose forgiveness regardless of you because I'm a powerful person and I don't need you to hold me in unforgiveness. I'm not waiting for a feeling to forgive either. That day will rarely come if you're waiting to feel like forgiving in order to forgive. Forgiveness is a spiritual and legal decision that you make and then feelings follow. Oftentimes, you have to put a stake in the ground and come back to that stake, right? Like the enemy who's the accuser wants to like remind you, hey, they did this, this, and this, and they did, this. they're not saying all that stuff. And you put a stake in the ground, you say, no, I already chose to forgive them and I'm staying there. I'm not moving from that place of forgiveness. And when we operate that way, it allows grace to flow. If you struggle giving forgiveness, it's likely one of two things. It's likely that you struggle recognizing that you already are forgiven. That Jesus has already forgiven you of everything that you have ever done. And if you live in that place where, it's, where I realize, hey, Jesus has forgiven me of everything, everything, 
He's not holding any, he's, he's forgiven me for tomorrow. He's forgiven me of everything. Therefore, I can give it away. But it's impossible for you to give what you haven't received. And so when I live forgiven, then it's easy for me to give away forgiveness. The second reason that you may struggle with forgiveness is pride. And pride puts you in the place where you believe that you've done nothing wrong. That you believe that you don't need forgiveness. And it may not be in that instance or in that relationship, but when I recognize how forgiven I am, then it's easy for me to give it away. But pride keeps me from recognizing that. The third piece is to recognize that the person is not the issue. How many of you have people in your life where the person is the issue? Now you're not going to raise your hand, right? Good move. You're listening. The person is never the issue. I'm going to say it again just so you have a chance of believing it. They say if you hear something the first time, you tend to disagree. If you've never heard it before the second time, you're like, oh, that may be true. The third time, which is what I'm at right now, you're like, oh, I've already had that thought. So (laughs) the person is not the issue. The person is never the issue. If I cannot separate the person from the issue, then I've got an issue. It doesn't mean that the person doesn't have issues. It doesn't mean that the person doesn't have patterns, but the person is not the issue. If the person is the issue in your eyes, then you're probably wrestling with judgment and condemnation. Here's what judgment does. You see, discernment recognizes that there is an issue. Judgment says that the person is the issue. Discernment says, man, like every time I'm around them, it feels like I'm getting stabbed in the back. What judgment does is it makes them a backstabber. When I can separate the person from the issue, though the person may have issues, when I can make that separation, then I can allow hope in. And again, you can't have healthy confrontation without hope. Hope is the joyful anticipation of good. Hope says, I believe that there is an opportunity for us to move forward in our relationship, for them to move forward in their maturity. And so when we struggle with hope, probably what we need is to ask God to show us how they see that person. Because in God, there are no hopeless people. That is good. Is that good? Back in the back, is that good? All right. I know you're back there. I can see you. You're still here. Resolution. So we reinforce connection. We start with ownership and forgiveness. We recognize that the person is not the issue. Then we're moving towards resolution. Resolution is not about assigning blame. It's about restoring connection. Resolution is not about assigning blame. It's about restoring connection. It isn't always about working out all of the details. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we have to agree to disagree. But I can agree to disagree and still move forward with you in relationship. 
if we could not agree to disagree and move forward in relationship, then we probably couldn't even be in relationship with ourselves. Because most of us don't actually agree with ourselves all the time, right? Try preaching. <laughs> so it's not about assigning blame. It's not always about working out all the details. Here's one that I've heard before. It's actually in the Bible, so that makes sense. It says, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. But what I've heard is people say, well, that's impossible. Sometimes you just need to sleep on it. Here's why Solomon, in all of his infinite wisdom, said, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Is he recognized that there was a difference between restored connection and working out the details? So Lauren and I, it just so happens married couples, right? It's like right before you want to go to bed that you have an argument, right? And sometimes you're so tired that it's actually what caused the argument. And so having any hope of working out the argument before you go to sleep is like, it's impossible, right? So here's what we do. Is we recognize that we're not seeing eye to eye. But that more than seeing eye to eye, our value system is our connection, not our right to be right. And when you can, diffuse, when you can do that, you can diffuse all that negative junk and you can say, hey, well, let's work this out in the morning. I want you to know that I care more about you than this issue. The issue is not you. It's an issue that we can work through. And then we can go to sleep happy. <laughs> From that place of connection, it's always easier to bring agreement. But when my, our agreement is based, when our connection is based on our agreement, then there, were, there is always room for division. Here's the truth for us as a church family. Many of us believe differently about God than each other. Like there's just certain things that, that you believe that I don't believe, I believe that you don't believe. I'm not talking about that Jesus died on the cross, rose again, but there are things that we believe differently, that we just see differently, right? That doesn't mean that we can't be connected, right? Like I don't have to agree with everything that somebody says in order to be connected. That's impossible. I couldn't be married. I couldn't live with myself, all that kind of stuff. And so when we move our value system from being right to connection, then we have the opportunity to grow in a safe environment. When we, when we say, hey, I'm connected to you. I care about you. This issue that we're not seeing the same way, I'd love to see it from your side. I'd love to see it in a better light. I want to grow in understanding. Then all of a sudden, when you bring something up, it's not an opportunity for rejection, but it's actually an opportunity for growth. So often, the church, instead of circling around relationships, circles around doctrine. And when we do that, we divide over the smallest thing. But when we say, hey, we're in this together, we love incredibly, then all of a sudden, even when we don't believe the same way, we can actually still stay connected. From connection, it's easier to bring agreement. It's easier to heal from the past, to plan for the future, close together instead of from a distance. Oftentimes, healthy resolution includes a plan of change. Oftentimes, if, if we're going to have healthy re resolution, then we're actually going to talk through the issues where we're close together. We're going to talk through the issues so that we don't continue to re-injure each other or do harm to ourselves, right? 
in, in our spiritual walk, so often we confuse confession for repentance. Confession is the acknowledgement that I did something wrong. Repentance is that I changed the way I think. Most of us tend to not dig in deep enough in order to change, and we wonder why we're doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's because you've confessed and you've not repented because you haven't seen it differently. The same thing is true in our relationships. When things go wrong, if you want them to be different, then you actually have to believe and relate differently, which is why in like deep connection, it's crucial that you actually get to a place of resolution and working on how are you going to do this differently. Finally, so reinforce connection, start with ownership and forgiveness. The person is not the issue. Resolution is, is not about assigning, assigning blame, but about restoring connection. The fifth one is when it's forgiven, it is no longer accessible apart from the blood of Jesus. Here's what that means. Jesus has separated my sin from me as far as the east is from the, the west. Romans 8.1 says this, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What forgiveness looks like is that I move that issue from that person and I don't ever bring them back together. And so the only reason that I can ever bring something up that I have forgiven is, is, is through the blood of Jesus, which is to use it as a testimony to the grace of God. That means that I don't have the right to say you always and you never and this is what you do and that's just how the person is because it's forgiven, which means that I've already appropriated the blood of Jesus over that issue. And if you bring it back up, then what you're doing is you're saying the blood of Jesus is insufficient to remove that issue from that person or from this relationship. Wow. Here is one explanation that I believe you need. There is a difference between an instance and a pattern. Okay? So I can forgive you for an instance, and I'm not going to bring it back up again apart from the blood of Jesus. But when an instance turns into a pattern, even if I've forgiven it two or three or five or seven times, 70 times, I have the right to say, hey, I forgive you, but this thing keeps coming up. And if we're going to move forward together, we've got to deal with it. Does that make sense? If you're in an abusive relationship, forgiveness does not mean that you stay there. That's called enabling. You don't have to stay stuck. It doesn't matter if it's marriage, romantic relationship, friendship. It doesn't matter if it's emotionally abusive or physically abusive or sexually abusive. If you're in an abusive relationship, abuse is defined as a misuse of power. Then you have the right to get out and the right to get help. Okay? You don't have to stay stuck. Forgiveness does not mean that you stay stuck. Oftentimes, forgiveness means that you deal with the issue and help them get help and appropriately protect yourself. And a lot of times, people just say, oh, you just forgive and deal with it. No. Sometimes forgiveness means that I'm going to back up from relationship until that person can get healthy enough to re-enter into relationship. Amen? I believe that this morning that God has done some things in our heart, and we're going to wrap up real quick. 
I think that there are some of you probably wrestling with understanding and receiving forgiveness. That you don't recognize how forgiven you already are. And I love the idea of biblical forgiveness is this. Is that it's not just that you were not guilty. It's not just that the charges didn't stick. It's not just that, well, there wasn't enough evidence to convict you. But that you're actually, the charges have been totally removed from you and you're actually marked as innocent. There is a difference between not guilty and innocent. And some of you, your past has been following you around for a long time and you need somebody to declare over you, you're innocent. You're innocent. You're totally forgiven. That stuff is gone and you're innocent and now you're moving forward. The second thing is... There's probably some folks here who need to release judgment. You just need to say, hey, I've been judging so-and-so, and I just, Father, forgive me. I receive your forgiveness, and I release judgment over that person. There's likely probably a lot of people who you've got some broken relationships, and you need to choose to forgive them. The starting place in choosing to forgive is not necessarily vocalizing your forgiveness towards them, but making a spiritual legal decree that's saying, I forgive that person. And then when it's right and safe, move into restored connection. Finally, some of you have opted for passivity where you needed to be engaged in relationship. And so your action step is actually to pursue connection with people that you've just let it go because you didn't want to deal with it because you didn't have the maturity to stand your ground and talk with the other person. Let me say this in closing, not every relationship is healthy enough to re-pursue. And so ask God for discernment, and that's where it's wise to bring somebody else into your journey. Would you stand with me? If you're at a place this morning where you'd like prayer for those things, our prayer team's gonna come forward. I know I went a little bit long, um, but I, I believe it was worth it. Hopefully you do too. Um, but if you need prayer, you need somebody to join you in prayer just as you're making these decisions, they'd love to. I, I prepped our prayer team to pray this over people who wanted prayer for it, to receive a baptism. Say baptism. The word baptism means to saturate so that what's being saturated identifies as what it's being saturated with of innocence. A baptism of innocence. Now, it's not in the Bible, but that you would recognize that you are so innocent that every fiber of your being is innocent. That no matter what you've done, the charges don't stick. They have no room because there's no condemnation in Jesus. And so some of you probably just need somebody just to bless you and declare you innocent. Let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you forgive us and that you pursue connection with us. We love you and we need you. We want you, God, and we love and need each other, God. We declare that we want relationship with each other. We're not gonna do this thing alone, but we're gonna move forward as a family. Amen.